Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Boar Sport Podcast with me, Sam Matthews Bomer. After 55 years, England are finally back in a major tournament final after beating Denmark 2-1 after extra time. And the question on everybody's lips is, is it finally coming home? The people standing in their way are Italy, fresh from a victory over Spain in the semi-finals and the team who have perhaps been the most impressive in the tournament so far. But before we get into previewing the match, which is the intention of this podcast, I think we should briefly touch on the emotions surrounding the England team, something that could end up having a huge effect when it comes to the atmosphere in Wembley, where the final will be held on Sunday. So I'm joined by Mitchell Ryan, Ben Northcott, Jack McRae and Curtis Long. And I thought I'd start off by asking you, Mitchell, what does it feel like to be an England fan at the minute? Just how happy are you? It's mental. I love it. (laughs) Just... (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of idiots in our fan base. And yeah, I can occasionally be one of the said idiots. But at the moment, it is a brilliant time to be alive as an England fan. Um, it's not one yet by any means, but just, just to be in a final again, just to you know hear that song in the streets of Nottingham, it's amazing, honestly, right now. Um, so I'm having a great time. Um, don't know how the rest of you are feeling, but I'm assuming similar. And Jack, you were slightly ambivalent before the tournament, if I remember. You were saying you didn't really care about the England national team. Has that changed? Or, uh, well, I, I've always like wanted England to do well, and I still do. <laughs> um, is I've always been more club over country, but yeah, it's been great. Um, everyone, the best thing about it is everyone's in such a good mood, and there's so much positivity everywhere, especially after how bad the last year and a half has been and I think Gary Neville put uh, on ITV yesterday summed it up so well uh, talking about Gareth Southgate which I'm sure we'll come on to later but yeah it's just great to see everyone just bubbling and everyone's just singing along having a good time obviously Mitchell's saying there's a small vocal minority of idiots but there's nothing you can really do about that apart from just enjoy the football Mm-hmm. I should probably insert a little disclaimer here myself. So I am half English, half Dutch, but for whatever reason have been more attached to the Dutch national team in the in the past. But I guess that's kind of a good thing because I can kind of be the neutral maybe, maybe in this podcast. I don't know about Ben and Curtis, are either of you not so inclined to the England national team or are you both fully behind the three lines? I'm a bit like Jack, I'm a club person really, but... Um... Yeah, it's, it's nice to have the, the atmosphere back again, the song and everything. It's nice to have the cheering and everything. But yeah, I'm definitely a club over country person. So hopefully I can bring that neutral perspective to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, probably similar for me. I've, I've got a bit of a win-win, as it said on the previous podcast. I actually bet on Italy for the tournament. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm still supporting England. And it's really amazing sort of being in a pub or being in the atmosphere. Watching England is, is, is really enjoyable. And I do want England to win. But I... I'm also more of a club fan, so I think I'll also be able to provide that perspective. Mm-hmm. That's something I found interesting, though, with um, like my um, my girlfriend and her side of the fa- like her mum's side of the family are all Italian, but she was born <laughs> and raised in England, so she's a bit of a conflict on on Sunday. So, like you, it, I don't know if it's a win-win or a lose-lose because <laughs> either you know, if you celebrate an England win, you've got you know you've lost money, Ben. Um, you know if Italy when you gain money but also heartache so I mean yeah I don't know Mm -hmm. so turning to the football now Ben I thought I'd come first to you looking back now 
kind of now that the emotion has died down slightly, looking back at, at, to that game against Denmark and England's tournament in general, really, have they played well and are they good signs, would you say, ahead of Sunday's final? I'm not fully convinced. I think the back four have done really well. I thought, I think throughout the tournament, um, especially in these most recent rounds, all four of the back four, I think Shaw's been really creative, particularly against Ukraine. I think Maguire's been so good for England, um, even better for England than he has been for Manchester United. And I think he provides a real leadership and sort of calming presence to that back line. I think Stones has continued on from his Manchester City form and it's been exceptional. I think Walker is so important to this England defence with his, so he's sort of the uh, the ideal defender against counter-attack with his recovery runs. So I think the back four have really impressed me. I think England's attackers, particularly Sterling, has really impressed me. However, I do have a few worries. Firstly, about Pickford, who I thought, who I think has been getting worse game by game as the tournament's progressed. I thought he struggled a lot against Denmark. I thought he should have saved the free kick. And I thought he had some really, really poor passes and clearances that either went straight to the opposition or out of play. And I'm also I'm also still very worried about the central midfield of England. I thought Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips were, looked a bit flimsy yesterday. I thought Denmark were playing through them quite easily in the first 45 to 60 minutes. And I thought a similar thing happened in the first half against Germany. So particularly against Barella, Jorginho and Verratti, I think they're the two areas I'm most worried about for England. Mm-hmm. And looking at the Denmark game in particular, obviously it was a controversial penalty decision to say the least, which I think we can probably all agree was maybe the wrong one. Um, but did England deserve to win, Curtis? I mean, all the XG statistics were suggesting that, but was that the case? Yeah, I think they did. They they looked like they would have scored anyway, even without that dodgy penalty. But it is a bit of a shame to see them go through like that. And, you know, if they do win, I think a lot of people will turn to that decision and say, you know, well, they cheated or whatever, which is a bit of a shame. But I think they did deserve to win on the balance of the game. Mm-hmm. The yeah. one thing I would say is it felt like England had a lot of pressure in the last sort of from an hour. It looked like Denmark were dead on their feet. I don't think the substitutions helped them at all, taking off Damsgaard. But... um. I think England had a lot of pressure, but I don't think they created that many sort of clear-cut chances. And I was quite frustrated that Southgate, A, took so long to make the substitutions, and B, when he did make them, they were very like-for-like. And I do feel like he was playing with fire a bit, and he was sort of paralysed by fear that he didn't want to go for it too much and bring on the creative players earlier and more attacking substitutions. Because I still think that even though England were the better team and had a lot of pressure... I still don't think England actually created that many clear-cut chances um, in the in the later periods. Mm-hmm. And kind of the man that they've relied upon to create those clear-cut chances has been rather surprisingly, considering his form before the tournament, Raheem Sterling. So, Mitchell, how as a Manchester City fan, how surprised have you been by Sterling's impact on this England team? You know, I haven't really been surprised. The surprising thing for me was that he hasn't, been this good all season, to be honest. I think, you know, Sterling has turned up for England a lot of times. You know, he, he had a bit of a shocker last time out in 2018 in Russia. Um, obviously, he didn't get on the score sheet. And then he started this one being the only man on the score sheet for England. But I don't know. I think he's he's showing that he is still an absolutely outstanding player. And City stand, uh, stand to lose a lot if they let him go this summer, which is looking unfortunately likely, I think. Um, 
Fabrizio Romano and the ball haven't reported on it just yet, but uh, <laughs> you know. so I'm holding out some hope. But um, I don't know. I, I still think he's he's just he's a brilliant player, and he deserves a lot more credit than he has got a lot of this season. He's been a bit off the pace for City, but he's showing now in this England team that he is still a very threatening, very good player. Mm-hmm. And the other bright attacking light. Jack, which I'm sure you're absolutely delighted about, has been Bukayo Saka, who, especially against Germany in the last 16, was absolutely fantastic. He was taking it past players, he was creating chances, and again last night he was the one that set up the own goal. So I'm sure you're not surprised at all by by Saka, but what what kind of impact has he made on this England team? He's been brilliant. Um, I even predicted before the tournament, sort of because my... uh, was going to predict Ferran Torres be young player of the tournament, but I think it was Ben who got there in front of me. So I quickly switched to Saka. But now it's not looking too bad of a shout, especially if he plays in the final and maybe gets an assist or a goal. It's not the worst suggestion. But yeah, he's since he's come into this England team, he's made himself undroppable. And we saw against Ukraine when Sancho came in for him, it was only because he was injured. It's not because Southgate believes him, Sancho, to be better or more suited to this England side. It's just because Saka had picked up that knock, which I think is a huge testament to Saka starting over this new £80 million, shiny new Man United player. Mm. Um, and no, obviously I haven't been surprised because having watched him week in, week out, I mean, he won Arsenal Player of the Season by, I think, 50% of the vote and won about four out of the last six Player of the Month awards for Arsenal. So, yeah, he's I've seen him week in, week out, carry a feeble Arsenal side and not surprised at all to see him transform this onto the biggest stage. I just wanted to ask Jack about this, actually, because if I'm correct in saying that Saka plays a different role in the Arsenal team to what he plays in the England role, and it seems strange to me in the first place that Southgate played him in that different role for, for that first game he played in um, the third group stage game, I think. So what are your, what's your take on that? It was not that he plays a different role. He's this sort of new right wing role. He's sort of come into, this has become his almost favoured position, I would say, particularly in the last six months. Early in the season for Arsenal, he's mainly operating as a left back or a left midfielder, but the second half of the season, the right wing position has almost become his own at Arsenal. Obviously, Nicola Pepe's had a very strong end to the season, but Saka was still the main man for Arsenal, and in the particularly in the Europa League run against Slavia Prague, which I think is why he actually started against the Czechs um, because he tore Borgil apart against Slavia, and against the Czechs he did the same. So I'm not. It's. I think it's more how good Saka is and how well-rounded he is um, that he can play anywhere across the pitch um, rather than one specific position. But I think this right wing, sort of right forward position is where he'll end up later on in his career. And it, particularly if he can add goals and assists um, to his game, which will be perfect for an Arsenal perspective. Um but the fact that we're talking about two individual players in in, Sa- in Sterling and Saka, to me, kind of 
suggest that that's not England's strong point. I mean, Ben, you already touched on how good and how the basis of this England team is their defence. And that's maybe created a bit of controversy around Gareth Southgate because ultimately he's a defensive manager. And with the players that he has at his disposal, many have been frustrated about that. But Mitchell, has Southgate seems to have kind of grown back into England fans' hearts. Mm. And are you now fully behind his more defensive tactics, would you say? Or would you say a different approach is needed in the final against Italy? No, I mean... Look, he's he's had his critics, and I'll, I'll I'll hold my hands up and say at the start of the tournament I was doubtful about some of the selection choices. You know, two CDMs seemed a bit a little conservative for me against you know like teams in the group stage like um, Czech Republic, Scotland. But you know, it, it's panned out, and honestly, I think as much as I would absolutely love for England to just go all guns blazing in the final, go all out attack, chuck like. 15 wingers on, just, you know, throw everyone forward. I'd love that. But, you know, at the end of the day, Southgate's done a brilliant job to get us to our first final in 55 years. That's not understate, like, how amazing an achievement that is. Um, And, you know, at the end of the day, it's his call. If this is what's worked all the way through the tournament, I can't see him changing it. Um, Even though I think I know in... It, like in my head, Italy are going to Spankers on Sunday. I, I feel like you know he'll stick with what he knows. He'll stick with what's worked, and hopefully it'll continue to work for us um, against the Italians. But mm-hmm. hey, we'll wait and see, I guess. <laughs> um, looking looking at the team more tactically on Sunday, I mean, there's the big question of whether they go for three at the back as they did against Germany or whether they go for the four at the back, which they've gone for against Denmark and Ukraine, in which has kind of allowed them more license to go forward. Um, but Ben, what's your take on that? Should the should they go for a more defensive system, maybe with three at the back to nullify the obvious attacking threats that Italy do have? Or should they stay with the four at the back, which has worked so well over the past couple of games? No, I, I guess Italy had to stick with the four at the back. I think I'd be more tempted to go for the three at the back if Italy had Spinazzola offering a really strong threat from the left wing. I could understand uh, bolstering the defence, but I think Italy's greatest strength is in central midfield, and I think moving someone out of central midfield doesn't really make too much sense in order to go to the three at the back. I also think um, Italy are a relatively narrow side with three very strong midfielders, as well as um, sort of relatively narrow inside forwards up front. So I don't think the extra width from the wing back from a defensive point of view is necessarily needed, which Southgate does seem to be a defensive manager and choosing the wing backs to defend against the German wing backs. I don't think the wing backs are needed to defend against Italians threat from wide, which seems to be Emerson, who I don't think is particularly good. Um, so I think the four at the back is what makes most sense. I think the biggest selection dilemma for Southgate will be we saw in Spain versus Italy I thought Spain were easily the better side against Italy and were quite unlucky we saw how Pedri and Olmo created so much joy against Italy and so many chances which Spain a bit of the story of their tournament really should have scored so I think it'd be quite interesting whether Southgate sticks with the more hard-working defensive minders Mounts and Saka or whether he brings in more sort of exciting creative players um, which Spain uh, did so well against the Italy back line, who are very good, but they're definitely, the Italy back line is definitely not impenetrable. Mm-hmm. Does anyone disagree with that? Does anyone think England should turn to a three at the back, slightly more defensive, or are we all agreed Southgate go 4-2-3-1? Mm-hmm. 
I think I, I said in a, a tweet yesterday when Luke put out his um report cards, uh, I think mm. I said, you know, we should stick with the the back four just because I, I feel like, you know, as Ben said, we don't have they don't have Spinazzola anymore, which is personally I think that's a huge bonus for us. He's been he was brilliant for them. So without that threat, I mean Emerson is still a brilliant left back, don't get me wrong, but I feel like he's not he's not Spinazzola. <laughs> You know, and I feel like if we go defensive and let Italy set the tone, we're just going to end up chasing the ball and chasing the game. Um, I think we need to go for more what Spain did, but finish better. Uh, you know, like because Spain dominated the ball, had like all of the possession, but they just could not finish off their chances. And that's what has me worried considering, you know, last night we struggled to create a lot, but... You know, I think if we can if we can start on the front foot, sort of take the game to Italy rather than letting them come on to us, then we might be in with a bit of a better shout. So I'm sticking with the four at the back. So we've kind of briefly touched on Italy there, and I think this would be a good chance to move on to them. So Curtis, you've become somewhat attached to this Italy team in a way, and yeah, you've yeah. become the ball sports expert for on Italy for this tournament. So I was wondering if you could maybe give us a brief lowdown on their tournament so far for anyone that hasn't maybe watched any of their games that's listening, and particularly their game against Spain, where maybe they weren't quite so impressive as they have been in other matches. Yeah, um, it's been a really interesting tournament for Italy, and it's because they've been sort of, they were touted as dark horses coming in, but actually straight after the group stages, after they, they won two three nils and a one nil, um, people were just saying they're favourites now at that point, because they really did perform excellently in those first three games and I don't think there's much disputing that. I think we saw a very different Italy side when we came to the knockout stages because against Austria they sort of got a wake-up call because um, they might have taken their foot off the pedal a bit or something because they played really well in the group stages as I said but they seemed to just lose that bit of buzz in that Austria game and I think that really you know woke them up straight afterwards and, and, and I think that game was just a really big challenge for them and they didn't expect that to happen. But um, yeah, they, they squirmed by and then you come to the Belgium game and they played very well again. And I think that was because of the Austria game giving them that bit of shock. And I think in that Belgium game, we saw an Italy which was led by Chiellini and Bonucci, essentially, because we saw this veteran presence coming out in, in finishing games. I mean, I call it finishing games, but some people might call it cheating, really, with the, the time-wasting mm -hmm. tactics. But at the end of the day, we saw the leadership that they had from the back, especially from Chiellini. And I think um, that's going to be really important for them. We saw that in Spain as well, when um, Italy managed to just hold on for penalties, essentially. And I don't think anyone was super confident that Italy would manage that. But in the end, they did. And they didn't really have the right personnel for penalties either, given um, that Mancini had taken off a lot of their forwards. But it was interesting to see that a lot of players like Bonucci is happy to step up. And he, he's missed a few in the past. But as a leader, he was happy to step up and take that. And it was really interesting to see that sort of older Italy almost, that defensive Italy that's happy to put everything on the line, come back again. So, yeah, we'll see a, a different type of Italy, I think, against England, one that we didn't see in the group stages. Mm -hmm. What's kind of been so impressive about this Italy team for me is how they've combined the almost two sides of themselves. So, obviously, the traditional Italy we saw maybe against Spain, where you have Chiellini and Benucci and... Donnarumma putting their bodies on the line, th um, throwing themselves in front of the ball, doing anything to stop a goal. And obviously you had the showmanship as well. You had 
I've, it was hilarious just before the penalties when Chiellini was laughing along and like jokingly punching Alba. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how he holds his nerve in that situation to put on that kind of laughing, smiling face. But he's Italian, so he does it. But then they've also combined that traditional Italian defence with a passing almost, I mean, against Belgium. It kind of reminded me of almost total football. You had Spinazzola running up down the left-hand side, becoming almost a second striker at some points. You had Insigne cutting in. You had the play, the midfielders, the three midfield players, Borghino, Verratti and... Uh, Barella, all, all kind of switching positions very fluidly, passing the ball in their little triangles. I was really impressed. So the Sicily team seem infinitely adaptable in a way. And that's what is so impressive for me. So Curtis, how, how have Italy kind of, how has Mancini developed that over only two years? I mean, their record is insane. They haven't lost a game in 27. They barely conceded a goal. So how has Mancini managed to turn it around? Some sort of dark magic, I assume. But no, um, <laughs> he, he sort of built this team around what he trusts and what he knows. And, you know, we say this like it is magic, but Mancini's proved to be one of the best managers on the, you know, at club level already. And so I don't think we should be surprised to see Mancini do so well. And I think um, they mentioned this on one of the Italy games at the start of the tournament, that Mancini didn't have the most fruitful international career as a player. And so I think, I think he came into this job with sort of this desire to do really well with this Italy team and to turn them around, to turn them into powerhouses. And he's done exactly that, to be honest. He's built a team where he trusts the players, even if they're not performing so well. He, he's happy to just, you know, throw on a sub or someone because he trusts his entire squad. And I think there's sort of this great team spirit around Italy. And Mancini feels like, you know, the leader of the team rather than just a manager. Mm. I mean, Mitchell and Ben, you were obviously Manchester City fans when Mancini was in charge. So... What kind of sense did you get of Mancini as a manager when he was at City? Did he play the kind of attacking football we've seen with Italy? Um, I thought Mancini was a very good manager at City and he probably didn't get the credit he deserves. I think whoever manages City, there's always this undercurrent of, oh, it's City with money. But I think Mancini was a really good manager and he did bring the first trophy several years. Um, he played some very creative football. He liked to, at City, he often liked to play a sort of 4-4-2, but with two very narrow, um, very narrow wingers in Silva and Nazari. So, so Mancini City were, were quite attacking and very creative. So it did always feel like he was, he was always ready to make that defensive substitution. City often switched between four and five at the back, and he was always ready to move Zabaleta into centre-back um, if need be. Necessarily... Um, the sort of creative masterminds. However, somewhat similarly to this current Italian side, he was very happy to play creative, expansive football, yet he always had an eye on the defensive side of the game and was, all re- and was always ready to prioritise the defence, which I think, I think he got that balance right at City and I think he's got a similar balance at Italy now. Mm-hmm. I think Mancini suits Italy down to the ground in that respect, in that he is willing to be more expansive in his approach, but he certainly isn't afraid of just shutting up shop. And then, you know, Chiellini and Benucci is one of the most, like, impenetrable defensive pairings of, like, they've been together at Juventus. And honestly, I think they're, like, his Mancini's wet dream, that, that pairing. <laughs> you know, he's, he's got, he's he's always got that defensive solidity. And, you know, He's, he's, he's got 
he's got that sort of wall and that sort of foundation that he builds upon. And he has, you know, he has some more perhaps defensive-minded players in front of it. I mean, Jorginho is obviously a brilliant passer, but, you know, he, he is sort of more reserved than the rest of the midfield. Verratti can drop back a lot. Um, so I think really he, he's got like that perfect marriage of defence and attack in this Italy team that he wanted to that he wanted so bad whilst he was at uh, at Man City. Um, so really, I think it's just it's just a great a great mix of manager and team. Mm-hmm. Everyone everyone kind of talks a lot about Chiellini and Bonucci, but I think we were all having our own little wet dreams when Chiesa put that goal in against Spain. It was absolutely mm-hmm. beautiful. <laughs> and he's emerged as the tournament has gone on, as Italy's almost almost their main attacking threat in a way. And Jack, I believe you're thinking about writing an article on Chiesa yeah. in in the build up to the finals. So, can you what what kind of player is he, and why is he suddenly grown into this great star and talent for this Italy team? Yeah, well, I've not known about Chiesa for maybe as long as some listeners or. Of you, many of you guys. Um, I first sort of like took attention to him was watching Juventus in the Champions League. I believe he scored two against Porto. And he completely outshone like the likes of Ronaldo and Dybala. Um And of that small bit that I'd seen of him, I was quite surprised he didn't actually start their first games. Um, and I've got a few Italian friends who. Oh, they had Chiesa shirts on, thinking he would be the star, and he didn't start early on. Um, but he has grown into the tournament, and he's—I would say, yeah—he's become their biggest threat going forward. Immobile's sort of died down his sort of spark that he had early on. Um, Insigne's still showing glimpses of magic, um, which I guess is to be expected. But yeah, Chiesa's shone, and he's I, like this article. I would. I'm planning on writing. I'm looking. I want to look at the almost as I was mentioning before. Saka. They've both came into their sides end of the group stage and have become these two undroppable right wingers um, and have become almost the di- main threat to the opposition defence. And yeah, he's been extremely impressive. And I guess one to he's still young as well, so one who may become an even bigger star in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, there's so much to be interested about in this Italy team because they do combine exciting attacking players with defensive, I mean, rocks, legends in Chiellini and Benucci. So it'll be really interesting to see how they approach this England game. And that's what I kind of wanted to bring together in this third part of the podcast. So we've talked about England, we've talked about Italy, we've talked about their respective strengths. But now, ultimately, they're playing against each other in the final. A completely different game to the ones they faced before. So, starting off with you, Curtis, how do you see this game going? Who do you think will ultimately win, and what kind of tactics do you think each manager will go for? Oh, I think Southgate is a difficult one to, you know, pinpoint sometimes because he he likes to change it up quite a lot. But um, I, like Ben said earlier, I, I can see him going four at the back, and I, I can't see any reason to really go three at the back. Um, so I think that will be the England approach. And I think Italy uh, know they're good enough to just stick with their tactics and not need to make any adjustments, really. They just need to play their stuff. And I think Italy have won this, essentially. But hey, never count England out, I suppose. <laughs> um, 
Does any of you think that England will win this? Are any of uh, England your favourites at all? It's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I can, I can um, dream. <laughs> uh, I, um, I, I, I don't. I'm also like Ben was saying. He's got a bet on Italy. I've got Italy in our house sweepstake, and I've got sixty quid up for grabs. Um, so Ooh. I'm, I'm, I'm also a little torn. But um, no, I'm. I think England are probably the better side. Um, I think it, England offers something to Italy that they haven't really faced so far. With so against Spain, Spain played this almost false nine system with Dani Olmo as the sort of false nine, and I think that sort of system Italy somewhat struggled against without that focal point and with Kane dropping so deep. He can almost act as that sort of false nine quarterback sort of style. And England have been strongest, I would say, down the flanks uh, with Shaw overlapping and, say, Walker on the other side. Um, and that's where Italy are weakest. Um, so Emerson's not a particularly good fullback. Di Lorenzo's been quite good uh, this tournament, but he's not of the level... I would say that you might expect for a finalist. Um, so I think England have the chance to exploit these weaknesses in an Italy team that isn't as maybe unassailable that we might have thought a week ago. Mm -hmm. Well, I think in England have weaknesses as well would be my reply to you, Jack. Um, we saw yesterday, as soon as a team or Denmark pressed high on the occasion that they did press high. Pickford just launched the ball 50 yards up the pitch, even if there wasn't a player within 10 yards of him. He felt the need for some reason to just launch that ball. And Chiellini and Benucci will win that header, unfortunately, against Kane every single time. So in a way, I, can, I almost expect this game on Sunday to be Italy pressing high. Pickford or Maguire or Stones desperately playing the long ball and the ball just constantly coming back at England so they won't have much of it. And Italy will just be in these waves and waves of attack and will score some goals out of it. Um, uh, ben? Yeah, I think just to <laughs> add to the thing on Pickford, I, I thought um, when Pickford went long, I mean, I really never liked to see a keeper go long. And watching City, if Edison started hunting it aimlessly up the pitch, I'd be pretty horrified. But, um, but for England, Pickford punting it up the pitch, Get a short pass, it would just go straight to a Denmark player. Um, but I do think I, I think you're wrong in the fact that I think the back four, particularly Stones, Maguire, and Walker, who sort of play a more deeper role, Shaw's the one who gets forward most. Um, I think they are quite well versed at playing out from the back. I think they're generally very good at playing through presses. Um, I'm not as convinced about Rice and Phillips, but I think while Pickford probably will have to punt long because he was pretty disastrous with his distribution against Denmark. I think Italy are much better at pressing than Denmark. I do think that the English centre-backs are better at playing through presses than, um, than Pickford, and they are better players than Pickford. They've played at a much higher level. But I would say that the England players and having to play out from the back haven't really faced an opposition anywhere near the calibre of Italy so far. So I think they're kind of untested in, in that sense. I mean, yes, they can play out from the back against the kind of half-hearted Denmark press in a way where there are only really three players involved. 
But as soon as the whole Italy team presses up and presses high and leaves very little space for England to play out from the back, I'm not convinced that Maguire, maybe Stones, but Maguire especially, I'm not sure he's necessarily got that ball-playing ability to play out of very tight spaces that, that he'll have to face against Italy. So that'll be an interesting one to watch. But Ben, turning back to you again, I saw on a tweet yesterday that you were concerned about the midfield battle on Sunday with between the three Italian central midfielders and the England kind of duo of Mount and Rice and or with Rice and Phillips, sorry, and Mount just ahead of them. So is that somewhere where you think the game will be won and, won and lost on Sunday? Uh, definitely. I think I'd probably have Italy as slight favourites. I think they've impressed me throughout the tournament more. I also think they've got a more well-rounded squad and they don't really have any weaknesses, whereas I think England's strengths are very strong and their weaknesses are um, a bit weak. Um, but yeah, I think I just think it's a bit of a mismatch in midfield. I think Verratti and Jorginho and Barella are exceptional ball players. I think Barella is also really good at making that of last minute run into the box into the right position and I would expect Italy to dominate the ball in midfield um, I think in the first half against Germany I thought Germany had the slight better of the first half against England I think what we saw was Havertz was often dropping into the midfield which outnumbered Phillips and Rice I just do wonder with I think Mounts had a relatively quiet tournament Sterling and Saka are very much more direct wingers who don't drop into the midfield so much I do wonder that Italy will have the better of that midfield battle just because they have better ball players in their midfield. Um, and against Spain, they probably didn't. I thought Busquets and Pedri were excellent in the Spanish midfield and dominating the ball. But I'd be very, very surprised if um, if, if Italy didn't dominate the ball on Sunday just because they've done that against everyone else and they've, they've got exceptional personnel at doing so. I think just, just there quickly, I think we should just appreciate how good Spain were on whatever day it was, Tuesday. Um, mm. The fact that they dominated the ball against an Italy team who are themselves possession-based. I think they had something like 60 to 70% of possession, which was just exceptional. And the, mm. the quality on display from both sides was absolutely um, incredible. But um, Curtis, fi fixing on that midfield battle, we expect Italy to dominate the ball but Rice and Phillips are kind of there in, 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 in effect. Southgate has put them there to win the ball back and to disrupt play um, and then send the ball out to the wingers and the players that can make a difference. So I'm not sure that Italy necessarily will win that midfield battle. I would say it might more be won in, in the forward areas with Chiesa and Insigne and Immobile. But... I mean, I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this. Do you think that Italy will win that midfield battle as well? Or do you think the players like Insigne and Chiesa, who Jack has touched on, are the difference makers in this in this Italy team? Sorry, it's a bit of a vague question, but, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I think it's all of the above, really. I agree with Ben. I think um, that Italy midfield is, is nasty and it's, it's, gonna, it's a different level to, to Rice and Phillips, essentially. And I know they play different roles and, and the, the point of Rice and Phillips is to stop the counter-attacks, you know, sort of niggle at the attacking threat. But I do think that Barella, Verratti and Jorginho are going to be too much, essentially. But I don't know if Southgate will really mind that because given the way that Amoli has been playing, I, I'm not sure if he's going to get much success or luck against Stones and Maguire. And, you know, he, he came off in, what, the 70th minute-ish? Um, for Italy and then um, 
they throw on Pelotti and again Pelotti's been underwhelming this tournament so I'm not sure if they're going to generate most of their success coming down the middle just because they've got the midfield on lockdown essentially I could see Italy having the ball quite high up against England but maybe they don't have that finishing touch from Immobile and um, Bellotti. So, yeah, I could, I could see them sort of having to play out because of that, because of the strength of Stones and Maguire to neutralise both those strikers. Mm-hmm. Can so, I just... Yeah. I, was, I was just going to jump in there, uh, talking about the sort of the midfield area, and I feel like we're not giving Rice and Phillips enough credit, um, mm-hmm. particularly Calvin Phillips. There's, I mean, he ran... So he ran 15.3 kilometers in the game yesterday, which was the furthest by a long way. And he made upwards of, thir- I think he made 37 pressures uh, during the game, which was almost double the uh, Declan Rice, who was second. So in Phillips, who I think has been exceptional all tournament, I don't think there's been a player quite like Phillips that Italy have played against in someone who's going to constantly run around the middle of the park um, and not tire out. Because as you see uh, for Leeds, I mean, Bielsa has transformed the way Leeds play and Calvin Phillips is central to that. And I believe he's taken that to England and Italy will struggle against Rice and Phillips. I know it's the quite conservative midfield and maybe people want Bellingham to start alongside one of them, or even, or even Henderson to come in uh, with that experience. But Rice and Phillips have been almost faultless. They're not the most exciting, admittedly, but I think they're a very strong midfield pairing and Italy will struggle against them. Yeah, just on that quickly, I'm, I agree with you that Rice and Phillips have been great this tournament and actually they've, they've been, you know, underrated by a lot of us and, you know, a lot of the pundits, but... I do think that the Italy midfield are just too classy and too composed, basically, to, to play out like that. Because we saw a similar press against them in the Switzerland game in the group stages. And um, Italy were just happy to play out, basically. And it, was, it looked easy for them to just sort of pinball the ball around. And it was very smooth and very swift. So I could see that happening, essentially, with, with those midfielders. I mean, they, they outnumber them and they outclass them. And that's my issue, really. I mean, I've, I particularly don't rate Jorginho as highly as maybe some others, mainly because of what I've seen at Chelsea. And if England do play the 4-2-3-1 system and, say, stick Mason Mount to almost sit on Jorginho and not let him dictate play, when he's not given space, uh, which in the Premier League, as we've seen with Xhaka and Pogba earlier in the tournament, these sort of players need the time and the space that almost a bit lethargic on the ball. But in internationals, almost a slower pace, They, when given the time, they look the world-class players that they are. But if, say, Southgate deploys this 4-2-3-1 and has Mount almost follow Jorginho around, who he knows so well from Chelsea, I do see him nullifying that midfield. And then Barella and Verratti, obviously brilliant players. But then again, you've got Calvin Phillips and Rice to almost track them throughout the game. So I do think England's in midfield aren't too far away from Italy. I I really like Jorginho. Um I didn't think he got anywhere near enough credit um in Chelsea's in Chelsea's Champions League run. I thought he was exceptional. 
thought Kanza got a lot of credit, but I thought Jorginho was just as good beside him. And I think Jorginho has continued his form from that um, end of season with Chelsea. Because I thought he had a bit of a patchy season, particularly under Lampard. I don't think it really worked out for Jorginho. I thought he ended the season really well. And he's continued that form to Italy. Um, I think Jorginho is an interesting one because sometimes he does have, a re- have really poor games. I think he had a really poor game against Arsenal for Chelsea um, at the end of last season. I think he also had a really poor game for Chelsea against West Brom. And in both of those games, Chelsea were really, really poor. Um, so I think Jorginho, both for Italy and for Chelsea, is really pivotal to everything they do. And if Jorginho has a good game, then that means Italy are much more likely to have a good game. And it was exactly the same with Chelsea. Um, and I think so far we've seen Jorginho be one of the best players in the tournament and have good game after good game. And I don't think I agree with you that England's midfield are enough to unsettle him because he is very good at passing under pressure. Um, and I, I, as I said before, think that um, think that Jorginho will continue having good games and that, and that the midfield battle, will, midfield battle will be really crucial to Italy. Mm-hmm. So ending on maybe a high point mm-hmm. for England... Italy, Italy do have weak spots, Mitchell, and I thought I'd turn to you finally for, for just a question of how can England exploit these weak points in Italy's, in Italy's team? And effectively, quite a big question for you, but how can, it, how can England win this game? If you were sat beside Gareth Southgate on the touchline, what would you tell him to do in order to exploit these Italian weaknesses that, that, that were exposed against Spain? Hey, look, I'm going to preface this by saying I am in no position to be telling Gareth Southgate what to do. <laughs> um, Mitch Lynn. <laughs> yeah. But look, I think we need to focus on the fullbacks. Um, Sterling and Saka have been like our best outlets most of the tournament, particularly Sterling. Um, we saw that last night, especially Luke Shaw and Sterling, their connection on the left has been brilliant. And I think, you know, Di Lorenzo and Emerson are perhaps out of this, you know, Goliath Italy team that just seemed to have like, you know, amazing talent all over the place. I feel like the fullback positions are perhaps the weakest now that Spinazzola's out. Um, So I think we just need to target that, run, you know, run a lot at them, keep it wide uh, and just, you know, Ride the wave of Wembley, really, is um, <laughs> is my, my message to England. Just, you know, stay hopeful. <laughs> um, you know, at the end of the day, it, in all honesty, we will probably lose to Italy on Sunday. They are a brilliant team. They've been brilliant all tournament. But on that same token, England have been brilliant to get this far. I don't think, I don't think you know, you can understate how brilliant they've done to get to this stage even if their run was, you know, relatively easy in quotation marks compared to Italy's. Um, but ultimately, this this game, as much as we can analyse it and it's our job to critique and pick everything apart, I think ultimately it's just going to come down to who's feeling it on the day because finals can't be decided by overall tournament form. Like you look at like the Champions League final, for example. Yes, I'm still bitter, but, you know... <laughs> Across the tournament, City were probably better than Chelsea across like the whole of the Champions League season. But when it came down to it, Chelsea just just played better and they won. So, you know, I don't think it's something we can say, you know, one or two tactical tweaks or, you know, these players will decide the match because it's, it's, it's all up in the air. A, a final form goes out the window. Lord knows what's going to happen. 
back England till the day I die. Um, <laughs> it's coming home. We can end the podcast there. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we end the podcast now, I was just going to ask you all for your, I mean, it might be too hard for some of you and that's absolutely fine, but for your exact match predictions for this final. Um, myself, I'd probably go for a 2-0 two, Italy win, but Curtis, are you also back in Italy? I am. I'm going to go 2-1 Italy and I think um, Sterling will get a goal from beating Di Lorenzo. Ooh. Okay. Ben? I actually think Di Lorenzo is really, really good. I've been really impressed with him. Um, (laughs) Always the contrarian, Ava. I think it's a really close one to call. I'm going to say Italy to win on penalties and 1-1. Jack? I'm going to say England's going to win 2-0. And if Saka... I retweeted something (laughs) earlier. I saw if, if, if Saka scores the winner, I think I might die. (laughs) (laughs) Mitchell can you bring yourself to to make a prediction absolutely I can Uh, I'm going to say 2-1 England win after extra time because I feel like knowing this England team they are going to drive every single person in this nation insane before Maguire pops up with a last minute header (laughs) <laughs> I think, and it's going to come from a long throw or a set piece it's going to be like awful football but we're going to win and it's going to be amazing and there's going to be pandemonium in the streets everything's going to be destroyed and yeah it's going to be a great time so let's bring it home lads. well um, I think we're all looking forward to the final on Sunday it should be a great occasion um, and that's that's the way that I think we should sign off sign off this mm-hmm. podcast Um Jack has heard my rather dodgy team talks for the His Sock football team in the past. So, has yeah. <laughs> so Probably Mitchell... best you're not in Gareth's position. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so Mitchell, you've you've given some sterling words over the last five minutes. So, could you come up with? Imagine you're in the dressing room before that game. Come up with two final sentences that you say to the lads, but to send them off, and then. Maybe I might insert a little bit of three lines at the end. Hopefully they won't copyright us. I'll insert a little bit of that at the end to get everyone um, up for the final. So, Mitchell, what are you saying? Well, it's a, it's a tough one, you know. There's a, there's so many words <laughs> I need to say, but so little time to do it. But Score more goals. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, England! I think the first, the first thing I would say would be Sweet Caroline, <laughs> and you. The England squad can finish the rest of it, and then we win. It's that simple, really. I think that's that's what it comes down to. Well, thank you very much for li- listening to this podcast, and see you at some point very soon. Enjoy the final. It's Goodbye. Coming home. It's coming home. It's coming home.